It's Mark 11, beginning at verse 1. Now, when they drew drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street. And they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road. And others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at this passage, which is no doubt very familiar to most of us here this morning, we ask that you would help us see it with fresh eyes. Help us to be revived in our souls by what we read here. Help us to be encouraged and grow. And may you grant us these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So what we have just looked at there in Mark 11, 1 to 11, is what's known as the triumphal entry. For a long time, Jesus has been heading towards Jerusalem. It's been building for quite some time. We've had Jesus going to Jerusalem, and he has said three times on the extensive journey around the countryside as they head to Jerusalem that he will be killed. It's a time of tension. It's a time of tragedy. It's a time of triumph. And what we see here today, we have people... Coming out, we have an incredible series of events of Jesus' precognition, knowing ahead of time things were going to happen. And then we have Jesus entering into Jerusalem itself. People lining the streets to see him, people cutting down branches, people shouting out praise to God. Now, these sorts of events where people line the streets don't happen all that often today. But they do still happen, don't they? We think of times where it can be times of mourning. Uh, The funeral for Queen Elizabeth II that was broadcast around the world. How many people line those streets? We can't really mention Meghan and Harry without controversy these days, but back at their royal wedding, the crowds line the streets. William and Kate, the crowds lined the streets. The streets, we're going to have a coronation of a king this year coming. I'm not enough of a royalist to know what date that is. It has been set. But we're going to see once more crowds lining the street. But we see it at other times as well. It's not just royal events. Perhaps things like Anzac Day in Memorial, where the crowds line the street and watch the marches go past. There are times where... When we read something in scripture, we need to do a bit of translating to understand the scene that's set before us in our heads. But this scene of crowds lining the street to see something exciting, to shout praise, to give honour, is one 
that speaks very clearly across the 2,000 odd years that separate us from this event. Now, these events can be times of mourning, but there's times where triumph is celebrated, where joyful events of great momentousness take place. Victors are often celebrated. We celebrate those who achieve their goals against all odds and give praise to the, to the triumpher. I know triumph is not a word. I had to add a hyphen in there. And we do it with many things. We even do it with football teams. 2006, Queensland beat the snotty New South Wales people. We won state of origin. We reclaimed the trophy. We beat those evil people from south of the border. Now the celebrations got smaller year after year from 2006 to 2014. It was a very long time. Very good thing Anna's not here to, to, to hear me gloating about this again. But reclaiming the trophy, the crowds were out in the streets of Brisbane to meet their heroes, to see their heroes who had vanquished their villainous foes. We see these things happen. We celebrate those who we look up to. We celebrate the victor. And what's going on here? As often as we might see these things, or maybe rarely, but they stand out when we do see these events happen. What we have here in Mark 11, and it's recorded in each of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, is far bigger than anything we see today. They are there. Because as we read in the kids' talk, the one who would come in riding on the colt of a donkey would bring salvation with him. The people of Jerusalem knew that they needed salvation. Now, it's quite likely I didn't have a spiritual understanding of the salvation they needed. But there was a great need for that. Towards the back end of the Old Testament, the people of Israel had continually decided to disobey God. And God told them, if you're going to keep disobeying me, there will be a punishment for it. And because the people didn't repent of their sin, and because they chose to keep sinning, God sent them into exile for 80 years. And when they returned, they began to rebuild things, but things never quite got back to being as good as they had been. They would think back to the times of their second and third kings, David and Solomon. Solomon, under whose reign Israel was at, its height of power, where foreign dignitaries would come and give homage to Solomon. The control was huge. Even as Israel began to shrink and split in two into the northern and southern kingdoms, they were still protective by a long time, uh, for a long time by God. And they won many battles and were still powerful. But after they were sent out of the land and returned, there were these ongoing niggles that seemed to be bigger. The nations around them ran roughshod over them more and more often. And to the time of Jesus, where they are living under the authority of the Roman Empire, they weren't really their own nation anymore. They were a subset of Rome. They've been looking for salvation. They've been looking for freedom from oppression. The sign of that would be someone riding in on the colt of a donkey. And this is why 
there is such a joyful event taking place in Jerusalem in this passage that we've read today. Jerusalem's joy is on display. Crowds lining the street calling out praise, putting their their cloaks on the ground and, and palm branches on the road so that the colt, the donkey that Jesus was riding on would barely even have to have its feet touch the ground. This is a momentous event. The glory of Christ, to some degree, is being recognised by those crowds there in Jerusalem that day. But let's take it back to the beginning. We've been heading to Jerusalem. In verse 1, Jesus and his disciples are coming an awful lot closer to Jerusalem. They're a town just outside of Jerusalem. And this was a time of year where there was the Passover, the feast that all the people in Israel, they celebrated together. One of three times a year where they would head to Jerusalem, all of them. This is when they remembered their, primarily their last night in Egypt, where they had sacrificed lambs and used the lamb's blood to paint on the doorposts of the houses they were in as a sign that they were Israelites and the angel of death would pass over those houses and not kill the firstborn child there, hence the name Passover. This was a national celebration for Israel, one that even under Roman authority was still allowed to take place. One that pretty much all of the Jews that were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate what God had previously done for them in the past. So there would have been stacks of people around. Jerusalem would have been quite a busy place at any time, but even more so at this time of Passover. But before getting to Jerusalem... Jesus gets to the the Mount of Olives, to to Bethphage and Bethany, and he sends two of his disciples ahead with specific instructions to organise his lift into town. It's a little bit more onerous than getting your phone out and pressing for an Uber, isn't it? A bit more work involved. So these two guys go ahead. And it happens according to what Jesus said. This is Jesus who for... Three, perhaps three and a half years now has been teaching, who has been explaining the Old Testament, who has been explaining who he is in light of the Old Testament, explaining that he is God and the people's need for God to save them from their sin because they could not save themselves. He is a well-known figure. Many people know Jesus by now. Most people know of Jesus And they know that there is more to this person than just a man. What we see with the organisation of just getting this this cult shows us more to Jesus than just a man. There are things that Jesus does that are outside of the realm of possibility for a normal person to do. He sends two of his disciples ahead and tells them to get the cult. And if your questions, just say the Lord has need of them. Now let's just stop there for a second. This is somebody's either means of transport or a beast which they would load up to make moving around a lot easier. This is the equivalent of somebody's car. 
If you had somebody come up to you, say we're at church, there's some keys on the floor, somebody comes in and grabs the keys and says, what are you doing with those keys? And the response is, well, I just need them. What's your response going to be? Is it going to be, go ahead, just take them? It's fine. The car's insured. I'm sure you'll bring it back. We won't have any problems at all. Or are you going to say, no, put that down. Those are the keys to my car. Back away, get out. I know what I'm going to do. I try and be gracious, but that's my car. You're not taking my car without my express permission. Don't try and pull a Swifty to get away with that. That is not on. Some people look at this and say, well, the people who were nearby when they said, what are you doing loosing the the donkey, were just so distracted by the crowd, so distracted by the things taking place that they just couldn't formulate a sensible response so this donkey is effectively stolen is what they say. But we don't see that here. What we see here is the unfolding of events to fulfil the prophecy from Zechariah, chapter 9, verses nine, verse 9, coming true that the king would come on a colt, not a war horse, not drawn on a magnificent chariot, perhaps even with flames down the side, on a colt, a lowly, humble creature. We see here that Christ truly is more than just a man. But we also see here his humility, exactly as Zechariah prophesied with the lowliness, with the humility of Christ. If he was arrogant and prideful, he could have ridden on anything. Get me the biggest, glossiest looking horse that you can find me and that will be sufficient for the king that I am. Have you ever been to the the Ecker or for those people who I just teased before from New South Wales, uh, maybe the Royal Easter Show down in Sydney. And those dressage sections of the show where the horses come out. I've got to admit, I'm not a fan. But Anna loves it, so we sit there and we watch it when we go. And even though I'm not a fan, those horses look magnificent. They grab your attention. You notice when there's an inferior beast next to it. Normally the sheepdog's running around. You notice a difference. But that wasn't what Christ rode in to Jerusalem on. And you would think that perhaps this would take away from people recognising the salvation that Jesus is bringing with him. But because of his humility, in keeping with the prophecy from Zechariah, the people, God's people, Israel, were able to recognize him. His power to know events ahead of time is astounding. But I would propose that his humility should stand out to us even more as we read this. And then in verses 9 and 10, as we follow this passage through, we have now the crowds lining the street with their coats, with the palm branches, with branch cuttings. And this is what we read in verses 9 and 10. Then those who went before and those who followed, the people on either side, this is a huge procession. Those who went before and those followed cried out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. 
Hosanna in the highest. They knew the king was there. They knew that the rightful heir of David had come. They noticed, and they noticed in all of the right ways. In Matthew's gospel, he emphasizes the question that the crowds asked Who is this? They recognized the greatness of this person. They seem to recognize the divinity of Christ, the, the kingship of Christ at the very least. We're still going, who is this? And perhaps we need to ask our question, this question ourselves. Who is this? The crowds had an idea of who he was. He was the king coming to the people. And they got the right response to that. They cried out, they yelled praise to honor him and to glorify him. And what do they cry out? They cry out, Hosanna. Now, I know going back to the origin of words isn't the most exciting thing that we can do. But sometimes it can be very helpful. In the Hebrew, Hosanna was originally Hoshia Na, which literally means save, please. In the Old Testament, it's used once. Psalm 118, verse 25. Save, please, is how we could literally translate that. Earlier in Psalm 118, then where we started our reading at verse 19 today, the psalmist is looking at the nations who were surrounding Israel, the nations who were pressing in on Israel. And that leads him to crying out in verse 25 of that psalm, Save, please, O Lord. Save, please. Who could save them from all of these nations? To the psalmist, the answer is God alone. It seems obvious to us as we read that psalm that he is looking only to God for salvation, particularly verses 19 through to 29. We see that so clearly that only God can save. The word began to change a little bit after it was used in Psalm 118. Well, it wasn't just a a plea for salvation. It turned into a word to praise God for the salvation that he promised because if God has promised, then it is as good as done. We don't know exactly when, but it is as good as done. God has promised salvation, so we use this word Hosanna to praise God for his salvation. And right now, before these crowds, before the crowds, Christ on the donkey was the means of salvation. This is the Messiah. This is the one come to free a people for himself from slavery and captivity. To usher in the kingdom of God. Now we know that the praise of the crowds didn't last. This is within a week. We see a terrible 
terrible turn from the crowds, a great betrayal against God, where these, perhaps these, these very same people called for Barabbas, a criminal, to be released instead of Christ. And Pilate said, which of these two people do you want set free? In the space of a week, it changed significantly. So maybe, maybe knowing that that change was part of what led to Christ's death on the cross, we look at this and we go, what was the point? These crowds are meant to be for the victor. This was meant to be about salvation from God to his people. Maybe we're thinking within a week it's all going to fizzle. What was the point? This isn't like the the state of origin players who if they'd lost, they just have another go next year. Worst case scenario, some of them lose their places in the team but the state has another go next year. This isn't like that. This is make or break. Israel had been waiting 400 years since they had last heard from God prior to John the Baptist and then very soon after that Christ coming along. Was it all for nothing? Should they have waited, just held off on the celebration until they knew for sure? Interesting, one of the other Gospels that records this, Jesus questioned on Why'd you let the crowds call out praise to you? Well, if I didn't let them call out praise to me, the rocks would have. We perhaps wonder if this is just a fizzer. What was happening was no surprise to Jesus. And what was happening this day had to happen. Not only did the king have to enter Jerusalem, riding on the colt, but for the salvation that Jesus would be providing, it is doubly important that it is this day on the Jewish calendar that he entered into Jerusalem. The day that Christ rode in on that colt It was a day where the Jews would choose the Passover lamb. The lamb that would be sacrificed, representing the payment for sins. For Jesus to enter on this day, for Jesus to present himself to all of Jerusalem on this day is significant. This is a day... The Passover lamb, the the, the Paschal lamb you might read if you look at commentaries, was presented to the people. So think about what's going on here. Jesus, ahead of time, knew what would happen with the organisation of the cult. He knew what would happen. He knew exactly what would unfold. He has prophesied three times that he would die and be raised back to life. This is actually worth celebrating because Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus knew what he was coming to do. Jesus knew 
how he was presenting himself to the people as the means of salvation, which was his death. There is no other way that the wrath of God could be turned away from those who repent of their sin and trust in him than for God himself to have died for us. And for that sacrifice to cover the sins of people, Christ could not just be God, he had to be man as well. This is one who is truly God and truly man. Jesus is not going into Jerusalem in a resigned way of, oh, this just has to happen, I've just got to get through with it. He does this in a determined way. Salvation comes in the name of the Lord. For the crowds, I don't think that this was a salvation they were hoping for, for many of them. Perhaps some of them did realise, perhaps some of them had their consciences pricked by God and remembered what they'd read growing up in Zechariah chapter 9 and thought, maybe this is it. Maybe this is how our sins are dealt with. Maybe most of them were unaware at this point in time, but maybe God moved in a few hearts. But for most, it seems, it's probably not the salvation that they were hoping for. And this should remind us that God doesn't work according to our expectations. He works according to his will and his purposes. He knows all things ahead of time and he is good and holy and just and he has brought about salvation in the best possible way. The crowds, they praised him. Again, we don't know where all of their hearts were. But if the crowd's response is to praise him, for those of us who have a fuller picture of Jesus and what even they did then, where it's clear that this is the Messiah of the world, the Saviour of the world, what are we going to do with this? The crowds made such a big fuss that everyone knew what was happening. Matthew makes it very clear the whole city knew what was happening. Is that how we see Jesus? Is that how we respond to Jesus? To make such a big deal of him that the people in our lives know the one who we praise and honour and glorify. It is easier to quietly back the car out of the driveway and come to church on a Sunday morning. It's easier to quietly attend Bible studies during the week. It's easy when we're asked at the checkout on Monday, how was your weekend? Just say good. It's not as easy to say all the wonderful things that Christ has done for us in those opportunities. There is more for us to see on the road to the cross. We've made it to Jerusalem. There's more questions. There's more to see. But be assured that Christ is the one who came to bring salvation. The one who, if we cry out to God, save, please, will save us from our sins. And there is the guarantee of forgiveness with him. Maybe we think we've got it all together. We grumble a lot more these days. We go back 10, 15, 20 years ago. What was the nickname for Australia? 
the lucky country. Maybe we think we don't need God. Maybe we think we don't need salvation, but we do. Jerusalem's joy at Christ entering its streets was evident. Our joy. Our joy that he has now gone to the cross and been raised back to life should also be evident. He did what he set out to do. He is Jerusalem's joy, but is he your joy? Do you cry out, Hosanna, in the highest, at this news that the eternal king has come? My hope and prayer is that you do. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this passage that we have read many times, but one that is just so, so rich and vibrant. We pray, O God, that our familiarity with this passage would not lead to us being complacent with responding to it. We pray that you would stir up in us a real joy and a real zeal to shout out Hosanna, to acknowledge your dominion and acknowledge that you have done everything you promised to do, that you have saved us from sin. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.